VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, progress, regress, and a grand vision for the future. Human development over the past 100 years can be easily measured in rapidly increasing wealth, health, and better opportunities for a growing population. That progress, granted, has not been evenly distributed. And yet, it is a story shared by billions around the world, including my own family in India. One of the things that concerns me most about climate change is that it may erode those markers of development, undoing decades of hard work. And by some measures, it's already happening. The Human Development Index has followed a steady upward trend since it was introduced in the 1990s. Now, it has begun to fall. But really, what excites me about the coming decades is that many of the solutions to our climate problem, clean energy, a more just, inclusive financial system, inevitable international collaboration, all have the potential to radically transform people's lives. Build this future and humanity will continue to thrive. This view is one of the driving forces behind the work of my guest today, Akim Steiner. He's the head of the United Nations Development Program which works in 170 countries to promote sustainable development, democracy, peace, and resilience. We are a development institution that believes in the future. The notion of living in the age of the Anthropocene is very much about understanding that we are failing to respond as a human family to the magnitude of the challenges of our time. But behind that is a second story. We live in an age of extraordinary possibility. The UNDP is one of the oldest institutions in the United Nations and uses its roughly $4 billion annual budget to work with 22,000 people around the globe, combating issues as wide-ranging as access to HIV and AIDS medication, poverty eradication, and digital inclusion. I sat down with Akim at the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier this year to talk about the opportunities and threats climate change poses to global development how countries can plan for more climate refugees, and what rising inequality means for a world facing multiple crises. Akim, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, climate change threatens to reverse progress on many of the development indicators like poverty, prosperity, education. Is climate change the biggest threat to human development over the next century? You know, it has already emerged as one of the biggest threats, and I would say it is not even over the next century. I think it is probably over the next few decades. One of the things that I think we're all beginning to realize right now is that uh, we have arrived in the age of climate change, not just as a scientific uh, proposition, not as some would still perhaps want to portray it as science fiction. You know, just a few days ago, we hosted in Geneva a meeting to bring the world together to support Pakistan in trying to recover from these catastrophic floods last year where one third of the country was inundated. Climate change is beginning to impact literally hundreds of millions of people. 
So yes, I think it is genuinely the greatest threat to the future of development. But, and herein lies also, in a sense, the other half of the coin, it is also the greatest opportunity to transform development in the 21st century from being essentially an extractive, polluting, and often depreciating pathway to how we have grown our economies, our GDP, at great expense to people, health impacts from pollution, loss of biodiversity, ecosystems, and now climate change, which is literally taking us to a tipping point in terms of many of the fundamental life support systems on the planet. So a very dark scenario if we don't act and actually a potentially transformative scenario if we do act. Indeed, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which puts out these massive thousands of pages reports every six to seven years, those reports aren't read widely. But if you do get a chance to read one of those reports, what you see is it paints a picture first of devastation that's coming, that has come, what we need to do to address it. And then it goes into this direction, which has become a new direction for it, which is if you do implement those solutions, the world becomes a better place, not just better in terms of where we are headed now, if we could use the technologies we do have now, but just better in all the metrics that humans would consider as progress metrics. Indeed, and I think this has been in a sense, the extraordinary story of the late 20th century, the early 21st century, that here is humanity with 7, 8 billion people seeing red lights flashing on all major radar screens in terms of the future, whether it is on pollution, whether it is on you know the prospect of far greater frequency of natural disasters, extreme weather events, many of the things that actually threaten you know hundreds of years of progressive development in terms of our infrastructure, in terms of our ability to survive in for example, small island developing states that may simply disappear with sea level rise. And you are right, in some ways, these are very scientific and complex documents. They also are a reflection of a journey of discovery that humanity has gone through. And thankfully, because the UN was able to establish an intergovernmental panel on climate change, independent of national interests, of industry uh, lobbying, it is really a documentation of the state of knowledge about climate change. Now, None of us have to read it because we also go to a doctor and, and you know, allow them to operate on us without having studied the manual for a surgery. And I think this is the same. The scientists of the world are giving us both an understanding of the threat of inaction, what climate change means if it simply continues. And what we have seen increasingly is across the world, a 21st century economy being invented, reinvented, the green economy, the clean economy, the decarbonization pathway. And I think from where I sit today, as head of a United Nations development program, my focus is exclusively on how to actually think about the future of development as an opportunity. Decarbonization today, the prospect of having renewable energy infrastructure and electricity supplies available in ways that perhaps would have been unimaginable 10 years ago, addresses so many of the risks to our societies, energy security, pollution, the affordability, for example, of connecting hundreds of millions of citizens on the African continent while still developing national grid infrastructure, mini-grids, off-grid solar, renewable, these are all shortcuts to access to electricity. And you know, one thing that we have learned in the last few hundred years is that energy, and particularly electricity, are fundamental drivers of development. So even for addressing poverty eradication, addressing the inequality that exists across the planet today, these kinds of technologies are, in fact, the accelerators for development, including addressing energy poverty. Right. Now, we shall come to how the UNDP is addressing some of those concerns that 
feed both the development agenda and the climate agenda. But let's just take a step back in history. We talked about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's only about 30 years old. The UNFCCC, which is the UN body behind the climate activities that are held every year, the COP events that are held, is also only a little bit more than 30 years old. The UNDP was created in 1965, much before we thought of climate as a threat. So just walk us through the brief history of why the UNDP was created and what briefly you think it has achieved over the past 50 years. Well, first of all, I think one always has to look at uh, an organization such as the United Nations Development Program as being embedded in the United Nations system. The United Nations, since its establishment, has had multiple mandates, keeping the peace or avoiding conflict certainly is at the center of it, but so is the humanitarian work that we do, you know, when disaster strikes, when conflicts occur. But increasingly throughout the 50s and 60s, the development mandate began to become much more central because as developing countries were becoming independent nations, as also the acceleration of industrialization led to essentially a divergent pathway where wealthy industrialized nations were growing very fast, and yet developing countries were lacking the technologies, the skills, the institutional capacities, and also the capital to invest in the accelerated development that we were seeing across the planet, there was an increasing realization that you know a few nations developing fast and billions of people being left behind is not a very viable proposition. So UNDP initially was set up as a funding mechanism to bring more resources to accelerating development support to countries. Now, obviously, development is not something that is static. We sometimes look at development as if it's a matter of helping a country to get to a certain level of income per capita or GDP per capita. And that puts countries into least developed countries, middle-income countries, other middle-income countries. It's a, in a sense, anachronism because really development is the continuous pursuit of um, choices and options that societies have to make about their future. Initially, early on, it was about access to education, healthcare, basic infrastructure, electricity. Then we started addressing also new threats, such as the advent of AIDS, um, non-communicable diseases. Today, we live in an age where, for example, digitalization is fundamentally changing the trajectory of development. How do we achieve digital inclusion? How do we also address phenomena that have to do, for example, with discrimination? Today, we have the 2030 Agenda, the Sustainable Development Goals, a smarter, a also more contemporary view that development is not solved by silver bullets, not by solving one problem alone. We are talking about economic transitions, ecological transitions, addressing issues of social justice and inequality that you know are really beginning to tear societies apart. Inequality, the obvious inaction on climate change and environmental destruction, getting more and more people to the point where they lose faith in the institutions of government, maybe in the economy, in businesses, and that's the point at which we today work with governments, addressing this complex, this uh, sense of uncertainty about the future. Now, that can suddenly start to feel very overwhelming. So one way in which, when I was thinking about speaking to you, was just the story of my life. I come from India. I grew up there. My grandfather completed high school and then got onto a factory floor and was able to raise uh, three sons who each went on to eventually start a business. And uh, that's why they could make some wealth and allow the next generation, children like me, to be able to study abroad and get to sit here in Davos and, and talk to the world's elite. But it was a process of prosperity that was backed by fundamentally development happening in India 
My grandfather lived through a period where India would have had the chance of having severe famine in the 70s. And that didn't happen partly because of development programs uh, like the Green Revolution that brought higher productivity to Indian farms. There were other development programs that involved money being transferred to India for progress on things like rollout of more efficient lighting, which saves energy, allows for more people to get access to light at night, which improves productivity, which improves outcomes for women's safety, for education among children. These are things that I have seen in my lifetime play out. But if we get to the specific, can you point to programs that UNDP did in specific places that you hold as proud achievements? I think in many countries, and as I travel today as, as the, the head of UNDP, the feedback that I receive most often is that UNDP has been a partner and companion to developing countries for decades. We are not an institution that, in a sense, comes in, lends you some money, or maybe implements one project. We are an expression, first of all, of the United Nations commitment to developing countries to be a partner to them for the long run, but also through uh, sometimes tough times. Increasingly, we have also been an institution that is associated with good governance. Good governance means transparency. It means, um, you know, having no corruption, but it also means how citizens can participate, how people don't decide for others uh, what is good for them, and also to ensure that no one is left behind. Very often, whether we are talking about issues of gender, the exclusion of youth, or by ethnicity, or by age, and uh, perhaps even... Um, understanding how indigenous peoples, both through their autonomy, but also through belonging to nation states, need to be um, understood and engaged in the development process in different ways. So governance also has to do with fundamental human rights, but above all, it also has to do with the role of government and the state in regulating and providing in a society for the kinds of judiciary and uh, legislative processes that make citizens believe that they're actually um, represented in their country and their, their views shape the national development choices. More recently, we have the way that we think about the role of UNDP focused more and more on the future of development. We have often focused in the past on solving problems that are legacy problems, lack of access to education, lack of access to electricity. And in the least developed countries, that still very often is our focus. But for many countries, middle-income countries uh, also, who often turn to UNDP for our advice, for our input, for our support. It's more the issues of the future. How do we deal with inequality growing in most countries? How do we deal with um, industrialization in a decarbonization age? How do we deal with essentially transforming our energy systems from a fossil fuel hydrocarbon-based system to clean energy? And how do we deal with digitalization? And also, how do we deal with the private sector that is not only large corporations, Every small-scale farmer is a private sector actor. Every social entrepreneur, every startup is a private sector operator. But if we think about it from the historical lens, one thing that we didn't touch upon in my story is India was a colony of Britain. And a lot of the lack of progress and development is tied to colonialism, to a period of extraction that happened, that took wealth away, that took resources away, that took the very fabric of society and structure and governance away during a period of hundreds of years. Is the UNDP in some way an apology from the rich countries, reparations might be a loaded term, to help those countries that they colonize, which are now run by people who are aware of the abuses that happened as a way to ensure that those colonies can get back to speed to where they were before colonialism? 
Look, it's an interesting question. And if I were to um, you know, comment on, is it an apology? I would say, well, given the volume of extraction that happened <laughs> through the colonial period, and if you take the discourse about the economic center and the periphery, then UNDP's you know, work over the last few decades is a pretty small apology. So I would not necessarily see that as the principal rationale for UNDP's existence. I think on the contrary, it's more the, the growing realization, just like in many societies, that if inequality, if the sense of injustice and of exclusion grows um, continuously, it ultimately undermines the fabric and the viability of societies. We live today in the 21st century in a globalized economy, but it's not only about trade. People try to reduce globalization to trade and essentially you know, how countries can export and import from one another. We also live in an age where we are connected to each other by news, by, for example, the pollution of one country determining the very fate of another country 5,000 miles away in the Pacific. We need to have a, a mature reflection on what is it that has gone wrong with globalization, which essentially was a sort of unleashing of economic forces in a very unequal world. So it also created extraordinary progress. Let's not deny that. China would not have been able to reduce the number of people living in poverty and extreme poverty by 700 million uh, over the last 25, 30 years. India, just in the last few years, absolutely, again, through economic growth and job creation, has helped uh, 200 million people escape poverty. But, you know, at the same time, people are not only per capita income creatures. We're not robots. We also look at injustice. We know so much more about what is possible. And when we, for example, discuss an issue such as migration today, migration is very often also an expression of hopelessness. It's sometimes the product of conflict, of extreme disasters, but more often than not, it is young people looking at what their life would look like if they stayed at home or seeing every day what life could be like if you were somewhere else. This translates into terrible debates about migration that I find very often offensive because particularly in societies that actually have benefited from migration, themselves have um, you know, been the product of migration, sometimes take the harshest view of migrants today. The very fact is we have always been a world that has moved around. But inequality has created such amplification of these pressure points that we are no longer managing it in a way that is actually a positive. It, it, it is dividing us, it is polarizing us. And so going back to your example of India, you know, India just in the last few years has again demonstrated that there is always a historical narrative and also a reason for where things in a sense emanated from. But what we've also seen in the story of India is that it is reinventing itself in the 21st century. Who would have thought 10 years ago that India would today be the largest investor in a short period of just uh, 10 years of building 450,000 megawatts of clean energy infrastructure in India. Yeah. These are the kinds of revolutions that also have increasingly to do with how governments and how economies make choices. Let's try and put some numbers to how much money is spent from the UNDP relative to other organizations. So the UNFCCC has a budget of tens of millions of euros. It's uh, based in Bonn in Germany. That's why the budget is in euros. The UNDP, the last numbers we checked was that you raise about six and a half billion dollars and you give out about four and a half billion dollars. Uh, there's some surplus. That's orders of magnitude more than what a climate change committee uh, is able to pull off. What specifically happens with that money? And that may be large money relative to what we're talking in climate world, but it's very small money relative to any large economy's government budget. So 
what do you do with it and how do you ensure that with that much money you're able to achieve these really important goals let me first of all just put a little bit of perspective on the we receive six now billion but we only spend four now billion might make some people say well where, where have two billion gone so in part this has to do that during covid and the crisis we receive multi-year financing agreements therefore in one year our income may uh, be six and a half billion, but it is actually to then be spent over two or three years. So on average, UNDP at the moment has roughly four and a half billion dollars that um, many different countries, including many developing countries, invest in order to have UNDP as a partner at their side. And these four and a half billion dollars enable us, first of all, to be the backbone to the United Nations development system, because UNDP has this remarkable presence across the globe. We uh, operate in 170 countries, uh, virtually unmatched by any other development organization. We are part, if you want, in, in many respects of the national development ecosystem. And in that sense, a partner that countries turn to, sometimes to think about very taxing issues, short-term crisis, but also to think about, yes, energy transition, addressing social injustice, eradication of poverty. So do you have a number that says, for every dollar that UNDP spends, there is X amount of dollars that come from other places, other governments, from private sector to support the goals that you are pursuing. It's very difficult to do that because um, I mean, we receive four and a half billion dollars and you've made a contrast, for example, with the UNFCCC, the Framework Convention Secretary of the Climate Change Convention. Now, the mandate of the convention and the secretary is essentially to convene the you know, conference of the parties to support and monitor the implementation of that agreement. We are actually the largest implementer of climate change support projects across the world. So we actually work very much in tandem in complementarity with the UNFCCC. A Paris Agreement triggers financing through the Green Climate uh, Fund, through the Global Environment Facility. Countries then turn to UNDP and say, will you work with us in order to access this funding, help us invest it? So we are today the, the implementer of the largest portfolio of climate projects on mitigation, on adaptation in the whole um, UN system. And can we talk about some of those specific projects? Yes, let me give you one of the latest ones that's starting just now. Renewable energy, particularly on the African continent, is still, in a sense, finding its feet both between national regulatory frameworks and the opportunity in terms of actually a shortcut to access to electricity. So on the one hand, we help many countries review their energy sector regulatory framework, because very often it prevents independent power producers, I, if I have a solar panel, I cannot sell my electricity to the national grid. How do you change that environment? It's called de-risking. At the other end is we have, with GEF funding, launched a um, program in 21 countries on the African continent now on mini-grids, essentially helping countries to put in place the legislation, secure the financing, look at the targeting of where these are most effectively deployed, and potentially helping 100 million people to gain access to electricity, affordable and clean electricity in a few years' time. We are also helping, as I mentioned at the beginning, a country such as Pakistan to raise in the international community an understanding that what happened last year with those extreme floods has a great deal to do with climate change. In Geneva, the Secretary General of the UN and the Prime Minister of Pakistan managed to bring together the international community to pledge $9 billion towards a climate-resilient reconstruction rehabilitation effort. This is what we do every day across the world and across many different sectors, depending on where a country sees the greatest priority. After the break, 
why has the Human Development Index gone into decline and how can we avoid increasing inequality as we take climate action? Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. In terms of migration, which is something you touched upon, what we do know is that climate migration has begun and it's expected to accelerate because emissions haven't fallen to zero and till they don't, temperatures will rise and climate impacts will increase. And so what is it that the UNDP is doing now to start dealing with what's likely to be an even larger migration event happening? It's first of all to understand migration is not an isolated phenomenon on its own. You want to address migration, you have to address development. You address development in the sense of creating opportunities, you actually uh, first of all remove one factor, which is the pull factor. I, you know, something on the other side of the Atlantic, of the Mediterranean, uh, of the border to my neighboring country is so much more promising. In fact, the promise needs to be my own country. So. That is one of the greatest weapons we have in terms of avoiding people feeling forced to leave the country they call home um, in order to look for economic opportunity elsewhere. That's why when people also say, look, development A, development corporation, aren't these things that we did in the 60s and 70s? And here I always say, look, the era of development aid has long passed. What we do today is, is to have development corporation. We need to invest in one another in order to be able to tackle the challenges that you know might have to do with climate change on the one end, but may also have to do with technology, infrastructure, and energy on the other. And so from my perspective, we need to understand migration, first of all, as something that should be a choice that is not forced on you, but that you make because you actually believe this is where you want to be. The UN is doing a lot of work to first of all deal with the pressures around migration, but UNDP in particular is an institution that is in the front lines of addressing the very factors that push people out of their homes. And that has to do, for example, also with uh, climate change responses, adaptation. How do you help people not lose everything when an extreme weather event occurs? How do we invest, for example, in rural economies in order to not have this phenomenon where more and more people feel they can only migrate to the city if they want to survive? Here again, digital becomes very interesting. Fiber optic cables that reach you know, provincial capitals begin to connect people in the rural areas means that suddenly not only do you have access to a new universe of services, of markets, you also have young people not having to live in a slum in the capital city in order to try and make it in this new economy. Uh, but you can actually go back, live with your family and work in that digital 
uh, economy of, of today where you are physically far less bound to be in places where traditionally they were the only point of access. It's a way of thinking about development as opportunities abounding, but we need good public policy. A key area of our work is to help governments quickly learn from each other and then help governments to experiment because every country has its own reality. You have to then adapt to national circumstances. Something that the UNDP tracks is the Human Development Index. Indeed. And since 1990, the Human Development Index was steadily increasing, which meant more people were able to live a fuller potential of their life. And then in 2019, that trend reversed. This is a global average, but it has reversed on average. And that was pre-COVID. In part, pre-COVID, we already saw some of the economic challenges being faced, but particularly the number that we published in the 2021 Human Development Report took COVID into account. And the remarkable thing is that for the first time in over 30 years of the Human Development Report being produced and the Human Development Index being calculated, we have seen two consecutive years in which the Human Development Index has gone backwards. Yeah. But, you know, not just as an average. In fact, almost 90% of the countries have seen reversals. Um, Including places like the US. Exactly. I was just going to mention life expectancy in the US. It's not just incomes. It's the quality of life, the number of people living in extreme poverty again, food and hunger crises that are re-emerging. So we are living through a period of a major setback in development, which is explainable by a pandemic. Now the ripple effects of um, you know Russia's invasion of the Ukraine on world food markets, world energy markets, world financial markets. One of the greatest burdens that developing countries are bearing right now as a result of what is happening across, across the world is that we are seeing a response to inflation going hand in hand with the rise in interest rates. And so the debt burden has now reached a point where UNDP's latest estimates are that there are 51 developing economies that are literally under debt distress and one step away from debt default. Wow. And you know, to the world's financial system, it may not be a significant part of the global GDP, but it's actually 12% of the world's population and it's 30% of the poorest people on the planet that live in those 51 countries. Just imagine what this means, because we often talk about statistics per capita GDP, interest rates. This is men and women, girls and boys whose lives are being fundamentally disrupted. Maybe cannot um, attend school. A father cannot take his daughter to a local health clinic. Families cannot feed their children with you know sufficient food every day. This is how our global discussions, including here in Davos, often become far too abstract. We yeah. talk about global recession, we talk about markets. This is millions of people's lives being fundamentally disrupted. Absolutely, and without them having to be blamed for it. Without you know, this is the, this is the flip situation. My life got better because of some work that my parents did, but largely because being in a country at a time of development that helped them uh, live to their full potential. And that's being taken away from millions of people. But actually, this is also why I'm such a you know, passionate believer in, in development cooperation, in the, in the idea that development is about choices, and these choices that are, first of all, well-informed, and secondly, are made with social justice and sustainability in mind, actually are the key to progress. And you know, the story of development over the last 200 years is in many respects a phenomenal success story. You and I are products of it. You coming out of India. I was born the son of farmers. Um, they lived in Brazil. I got a good education. I found opportunities in which to you know, 
follow my own passion as a development economist, we can all tell stories. And the tragedy of development is when the possibility is not available to people. This is why we talk about access to education, about access to energy and electricity, access to finance. That's the great divider in our societies. And that's why inequality has become such a poison chalice, so to speak, in our modern world, because in our fixation to grow economies, to create wealth, we simply lost sight of the fact that, you know, wealth in aggregate and average terms means nothing to somebody who has no access to the internet today. A report came out by Oxfam in January that said two thirds of the new wealth generated since 2020 has been captured by the richest 1%, uh, while only a third has gone to the remainder. Can human development and climate goals be achieved in such a system? The simple answer is no, for two reasons. One, because societies will ultimately not tolerate this kind of inequality. And frankly speaking, first of all, it's not essential. I, I often wonder whether you know, the Jeff Bezos or the Elon Musk of this world would have somehow stayed in bed if they had only earned one one hundredth of what they have earned. And we all know the answer. No, they're entrepreneurs, they're innovators. It's just that in the way that our economy, our financial system operates today, and the UN Secretary General has repeatedly now called uh, out the global financial system also as essentially reflecting a moral bankruptcy that is uh, making it impossible to address some of the issues that we could tackle. And the second answer to the wonderful work that Oxfam does in showing also policy options, taxation options, fiscal policy options, is that with just taxing 5% of that global wealth, the billionaire's wealth, as, as it is referred to, would generate $1.7 trillion. That's $1,000 billion and another $700 billion. Yeah. Can I just remind the world that we can't even get it together right now in the rich world to co-invest $100 billion on climate change with developing countries. This is what's wrong in our world. And I think Oxfam's lens on you know the wealthy and opportunities to leverage that wealth in a way that could solve so many problems on education, on access to energy. I think it's just a reminder that we need to rethink the way we run our lives, our economies, but also in the way we want to live together with 8 billion people on this planet. We saw massive inequality in the distribution of COVID vaccines and resources during the pandemic. How do we reduce this inequality with a more persistent but slower burning problem like climate change? And just to put numbers here, as of July, 72% of people in high-income countries were vaccinated. In low-income countries, only 21%. Well, you may raise an eyebrow, actually, and so will some of your listeners, but I would argue very strongly multilateralism is fundamental to this. If we live in a kind of geopolitical Darwinist world where the strongest, the wealthiest will simply set the rules for the 21st century and beyond, I think we will produce problems that will be insurmountable and unmanageable. So, multilateralism as an expression of nations coming around the table, essentially, with very unequal realities, very unequal means. But in the symbolism of the UN General Assembly, every nation, however small or large, has one vote there. They have a seat in that hall. We need to evolve that model that was you know, built after the Second World War into a 21st century platform for cooperation on the fundamental challenges that no country individually can solve. So, Therein lies one answer, I think, to, to what you have outlined. And the second part is just the ability to think of solutions as not being beyond our reach. And I think there we need to learn to work more with the scientific community, with the private sector, and not always think of the private sector also as multinationals. The greatest percentage of innovations around the world 
generally emanate from around kitchen tables and garages. You know, it's individuals who solve problems, but then sometimes don't find the attention, the support to make them available to, to the world at large. So these are the transformations, I think, that we will hopefully see happen much faster. And as a climate change reporter, I've thought about what climate is going to do to the world for years now. The threat that many see, especially in Western countries, is that their lives are going to be disrupted and their quality of life is going to be poorer. That certainly is a possibility. But the fear that I have, which is the greatest fear, is of development metrics reversing and then never getting to the golden age that many, many countries lived through in the last 30 years of allowing for human potential to flourish. And that, on the aggregate, feels a much larger uh, loss. Um, and so coming back to climate then, we started with the understanding that climate change presents the greatest threat to development. But then we ended up talking about most of the issues that are very current. Um, so how do you make the case for acting on climate change while these other crises, which are very urgent, very important, continue to play? Look, at the end of the day, climate change is not a, a parallel universe to everything else that happens in development. In fact, climate change is a consequence of millions of decisions being made in the kinds of energy infrastructure we, we rely on, in the kinds of transport systems we have, the sort of buildings we build. And I think that is why I so much appreciate the opportunity to now lead the United Nations Development Program, because in many ways it is the institution that tries to bring together the threads that allow us to imagine a future that Mary Robinson, in fact, when we launched this year, or the 2022 uh, UNDP Human Development Report, in a sense said, there's a great deal of very sobering statistics coming out of it, but built within that report is also a narrative that says that the greatest of times may still lie ahead of us. And I think this is crucial because we often look at climate change as if it's sort of a dragon that we have to slay that is over here. The reason why, for example, UNDP in its current strategic plan set itself an almost unimaginable goal, namely to help 500 million people gain access to clean and affordable energy, was a way of saying, look, we will make climate change as a threat, converted into an opportunity, part of everything we do. We don't yet quite know how to do this, but we think it is perfectly feasible. And that is why you see UNDP today being a major player in many countries in helping to rethink energy systems, looking at the way in which access to electricity is not just um, a fundamental enabler of development, it's the access to affordable and clean electricity that will allow a continent such as Africa to pivot forward. We are a development institution that believes in the future. And the notion of living in the age of the Anthropocene, which has become a theme that we have also explored in our human development reports, is very much about understanding that we are failing to respond as a human family to the magnitude of the challenges of our time. But behind that is a second story. We live in an age of extraordinary possibility of being able to leverage technology and finance and human ingenuity to actually make very different choices. And you know what? Last year, 81% of all new electricity generating infrastructure that came on to the grid or into people's houses was actually renewable. This is proof that revolutions, even in the energy sector, so locked down in hydrocarbons, so, in a sense, locked into political economy. In 1977, ExxonMobil scientists 
essentially wrote the first chapter of the IPCC reports that were to follow. It's the age of your responsibility that we live in. It's not a fatalist moment in which we simply sit back and give up. And that's the promise of development. That's the future of development that UNDP very much sees itself part of. Well, I enjoyed this a lot. We talked on very wide-ranging subjects and I could keep going in many directions for a very long time. But thank you for making the time. Thank you for the opportunity, Akshat. One of the things Akim and I touched upon was Oxfam's recently published report on inequality, which shows two-thirds of new wealth generated since the pandemic has been captured by the top 1%. While I was in Davos, I also spoke with Gabriela Boucher, the executive director of Oxfam, to ask her about how inequality contributes to climate change and why it is so hard to untangle the two. Well, these are very complex and intertwined issues, and and they really question the way society as a whole has been organized. So what we're saying is, what can we do? What policies can we put in place to address it? And we link very much this uh, growing inequality with the effects on, on climate. So we talk about the carbon billionaires, how billionaires are in fact consuming so many times more than, than is compatible with a 1.5 degree warming, but also that they have doubled the amount of investment in fossil fuel industries than the average investor. So these things are very connected at that level. And of course, the worst effects of, of the climate crisis are experienced in the most vulnerable places in the world. So when I was in Somalia last year, I could see the effects of this protracted drought, which has continued. And so it's the worst drought in living memory. And pastoralists who are very, very resilient people and have put up with all sorts of harsh conditions over centuries are really no longer able to cope with these much more extreme weather events. We've linked the Oxfam report on inequality in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Send it to a friend or send it to the richest person you know. Get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindrim, Samar Sadi, and Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum for letting us use the podcast studio where today's conversation was recorded. I'm Akshat Rathi, back next week.